Hi, welcome to another edition of EdChoice Chats. I'm Paul DePerna, Vice President of Research here at EdChoice. And I'm joined today with Jennifer Wagner, our Vice President of Communications, and Mike McShane, our Director of National Research. So we're here for a new line of conversation stemming from our EdChoice Public Opinion Tracker polling series. And so for those of you who haven't joined us in the past and previous podcasts, every month we pull a nationally representative sample of the general public and report that out through our blog and other social media. And we also poll teachers on a quarterly basis. And we do this in partnership with Morning Consult, who's a leading market intelligence and survey research firm. So what's new? This is the first time we have surveyed America's teenagers. And so back in August, we surveyed nearly 1,000 teens ages 13 to 18. And this was all done via online survey from August 17th to 19th. So for this most recent version of this poll, we wanted to see where teens were last spring, how they felt about how the pandemic affected their schooling and learning. And we also wanted to see how they felt about going back to school and some of the feelings around back to school and what some of their concerns were, what kind of safety measures they would like to see in schools. And so over the summer, we've seen a lot of attention to the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the protests that were going on in different cities around the country. And so social issues have definitely risen to the forefront in a lot of Americans' minds. And so we wanted to see where teenagers were on what kinds of social issues really mattered the most to them and who they felt comfortable talking about those issues with. And so, you know, to take a step back, I mean, I think, Jen and Mike, if we, if we pulled teens today when we're doing this podcast, I think we might see some different kinds of emotions that we saw a few weeks ago because we just learned that TikTok and WeChat may be getting banned and teens won't be able to use those kind of apps and social media platforms moving forward. And so we might see some anger and frustration and, and, and being upset and disappointment. But that was one of the questions, though, I mean, to just move into the polling. One of the questions we asked was, how do teens feel about going back to school? What, what are some of the feelings that they felt? And so anxious, nervous was a big response, feeling scared, worried. I mean, were some of those responses to either of you, did that seem like a surprise or, you know, was there anything that stood out to you? I'm really, really interested in this survey data because uh, in part, I have a 12-year-old who will be 13 in a couple months. And it was really interesting to kind of hear in the, you know, in the e-learning phase and then to hear her and her friends talk as they were preparing to go back to school in person about how they were feeling. And I think a lot of the media coverage around this particular subsection of a generation has been pretty negative. A lot of coverage of, you know, especially high school kids not respecting social distancing or wearing masks. And I think it's really interesting um, now that we have this data back to see a couple of key points, which is number one, teenagers are actually very concerned about COVID-19. They're not, you know, this happy-go-lucky, carefree group of individuals running around behaving recklessly. They are worried about it. They are specifically worried about infecting a family member or getting infected. So 81% said they're worried about infecting a family member and 70% said that they're concerned with actually getting the virus. So I think that was very surprising. I also think it was, you know, heartening that they understand the value of the safety measures that are being put in place. And they think at least when it comes to wearing masks that their you know, friends and their peers will do so. 
So again, I think it's just really, it's been remarkable to be able to take a look at this age range because a lot of other polling firms have not been able to reach out to them. And then to have some of this data that really does push back on the narrative that teenagers are reckless and not taking this seriously. Yeah, and I think it's so funny, Jen. I think that's exactly right, because it's just such a tired trope of people looking down at teenagers. And I'm a millennial, and I'm like kind of an old growth millennial. So I think depending on when people started, was it you were born in 80 or 82, and I was born in 84. So I'm, I'm clearly a millennial, but I'm possibly the only one. And for my entire, you know, cognizant life, people have been talking about millennials and how we're just like the worst and whatever. And oh, wait, it turns out that that like might not actually be the case. Oh, man, it's crazy. You know, so it's so funny to see the same pattern repeated. Maybe some millennials and others looking at the younger generations and not being able to understand them. And it's fun. I mean, go back and read things written 2000 years ago. And it's like, kids these days, what are we going to do? So it's just Hopefully one of these times we're going to learn from, but if we haven't learned it in the, what, 50 generations from then to now, we probably won't. You know, one of the things that stood out to me is we put out this really interesting word cloud that had the different things that kids said and the sort of relative prevalence of them. And the thing that stood out to me was how some of the big terms were these kind of mirror images of one another. So like the two biggest ones that stand out to me are nervous and excited. And then the next are like happy and anxious. And it just seems, you know, as someone who used to be a high school teacher, you know, you see that that's very common, I think, in young people, in people in, in this age group, is that they can be both things at the same time, that they're both excited and they're nervous. They're both happy and they're anxious. And so it's an important kind of thing to think about as we make claims about kids and what they're feeling and what they're thinking, because it can change from day to day and it can change from minute to minute. So they may have deep concerns about something, but then, you know, another thing happens and it sends them in a new direction. So, you know, a lot of these feelings that they have probably aren't super fixed. New information comes in and they change because they just haven't had the same life experience that other people have had. So they kind of vacillate back and forth as new information becomes available to them. So I would expect to see, you know, if we were to survey these kids every month, let's say we surveyed them every month for the rest of their lives. I would imagine continuing seeing these kind of wild swings and maybe that the, the sort of amplitude of it gets smaller and smaller as they get older because each new piece of information is a little bit less novel. But I found this really fascinating. It was cool to see what they think about this because we spend so much time talking about them that it's great to actually hear what they have to say. Yeah, Mike, just follow up what you were saying. So I'm a Gen Xer. And so we, you know, we're the angsty, you know, anxious generation. So I was looking at those responses. I was thinking about what could be different this school year than maybe in previous school years. I mean, I, I remember feeling, you know, anxious or worried going back to school, but scared and sad seemed to be ones that popped out to me that like maybe speaks to the pandemic a little bit. So, um, but yeah, this is something we hope to track in the future. And also just a quick side note to some of our listeners, to the extent that you're interested in the report, the questions that we asked, and also the cross tabs that look at the different demographic breakouts, I encourage everybody to go to the website for our public opinion tracker. It's edchoice.morningconsultintelligence.com. And so just to go into the next set of questions, I mean, so we also asked teens, how did things look back in the spring and what kind of resources they had available? I mean, were there some results there that you found interesting, Jen? There were. I think that, you know, it was, it was interesting to me how behaviors have changed and quite frankly, how they didn't as a result of the pandemic. And obviously, you know, students were no longer able to go to class at school, so they weren't able to 
use that to connect with their friends and peers. And, you know, we have a great slide in this deck that shows where they do go to socialize online. And as you alluded to in your intro, Paul, the potential outage or removal of TikTok or uh, WeChat could be devastating for this age group. And I can speak from personal experience of being the mom of a 12-year-old who, you know, she keeps trying to teach me the TikTok dances, and I just keep failing miserably at it. As you're not turns- doing that, that Taylor Swift dance <laughs> where the camera pushes away and then everybody dance. You're still working on that one and um, hasn't I, quite come together yet? Maybe by the next time we get together, I'll, I'll, have, that, uh, I'll have that down pat. It, it is funny, though. Like, we were talking, you know, uh, in an email offline here about the things that we've learned from TikTok. It's a remarkable platform. But one of the things that really did stand out to me is the desire to go back to school in person was not strong when this poll was taken mid-August, but we had almost 25% of our respondents tell us that they don't have internet access at home to do online classwork. And that was stunning to me. I mean, I live in Indiana. We obviously have not great broadband out in our rural areas, but it was surprising to me that that number of students reported not being able to access the internet at home. And I don't know, like that also stood out to you where you live, but We obviously have some work to do if we are going to, in the broader school choice movement, you know, use this as a pivot point to embrace more online learning or more different hybrid models of learning. So we've got some work to do. Yeah, it's really interesting. Here in Kansas City, I know when the pandemic broke out, I'm on the board of a small nonprofit called Lean Lab Education. You all should check it out. It does great things. But it's like a uh, incubator accelerator for educational entrepreneurs. And that organization did kind of a pivot back in March when they saw what these problems were to try and solve this connectivity problem because it was something that they did some surveys from schools and whatever. And yeah, I mean, it was just gobsmacking the number of students who didn't have, or if they had internet access, they didn't have the sort of adequate bandwidth to be able to do this. And that's one thing that's actually worth thinking about. Well, I guess there's probably two things that were worth thinking about. The first one was that I think at the beginning of the problem, people thought this was a device issue more than a connectivity issue. And so it was like shipping Chromebooks left and right. And it turned out that like that actually wasn't the problem. You can get Chromebooks to kids and it's not that expensive and it's not that difficult. It's the connectivity that's the challenge is actually getting those things connected to the internet. But the other piece of it is just, you know, for families that have multiple children and potentially multiple parents working from home, just the bandwidth to have, you know, if they're trying to do synchronous learning or something where you've got, you know, live video conferencing on six devices, I mean, Here in the Silicon Prairie, we've got Google Fiber, so maybe we're able to weather that better than others. But, you know, like that's also something that was difficult to think about because there was such a push to do more robust online learning, which is awesome and good. And I'm like all for it. And that's great. But if you've got four kids and two parents, I mean, you're drawing a lot of bandwidth on that and then multiply that out from household to household. So I think those are definitely issues that are interesting. But yeah, I mean, I was kind of surprised, uh, Jen, like you, at the the degree to which kids seem to be kind of cool with online learning. Like, I thought that it was going to be, uh, kids were going to hate it a lot more. But it's interesting. Who knows? Maybe the more asynchronous nature of it has given them more time to do other things. Maybe they're able to kind of move more at their own pace. Maybe they have a little bit more independent learning. I mean, that's going to be interesting to sort of dig into in the future. But Yeah, I thought they were going to hate it a lot more or they thought they were going to say, like, how soon can I get back in with my classmates? But I I guess that's not the case. Well, and it's been really interesting. And I know, Paul, you can speak to this, too, as as a parent of school age kiddos. Like my two are they're back full time in person at their private school wearing masks all day. They were excited to go back. They were all 
pieces of that word cloud. They were both excited and anxious and sad and happy. But they're five and a half weeks in at this point, and both of them have asked if they could go back to what they call homeschooling, which is generous. It's not homeschooling. It was e-learning because I myself am not a home educator and also have a full-time job. But uh, both of them have asked, and the reasons that they've asked are exactly what you just said, Mike. It's, it's they want to move at their own pace. And especially for the nearly 13-year-old, getting up at 6.30 in the morning and you know putting on a school uniform and, and sitting in a classroom all day period is hard. And then add on top of that, wearing a mask, not being able to have their normal food service, it's rough. And so they've both, you know, said, oh, I wish we had an option. And our school didn't give us an option, um, which was frustrating. So, and Paul, I know we've talked a lot about your e-learning experience that you're still kind of in the middle of and, and how that's going. Yeah. I mean, so this conversation and the results that we have on teens, so our, our daughters are both in elementary. And so we have a third grader and a fifth grader third grader has been back full-time in person, loves it, and just could not wait to go back. And this has just been, you know, so good for her, just compared to like what we saw in the spring, you know. And then for our fifth grader, she's doing kind of the hybrid thing right now, where it's two days in person and then three days at home. And we're also like you, Jen, we're in week six of school. And the whole online thing has definitely worn over. And we're starting to see a lot more pushback. So this is kind of the bigger point I guess I'm trying to make is that I feel like there's a lot of this conversation about differentiating by grades or spans, you know, primary grades, middle schoolers and, and high schoolers. I think, you know, online learning, remote learning has very different, you know, kind of cachet to, to each, each of those populations of students. And so, yeah, I mean, the high schoolers I've talked to, to in our neighborhood, they're also, even though they're going back in person, they also like that self-pacing and more independent learning, where at least our end size of two in our in our household. I mean, they, they like the social aspects of school and being around you know their friends. Not that teenagers don't, but I think teenagers will have a little bit more flexibility and have more outlets to do that kind of thing outside of maybe the school building. So yeah, it's fascinating. The results are really interesting. I'll get away from my tangent now and go back to some of the poll results that we had. And so we saw that there were a lot of good sized proportions of teenagers saying that they lacked internet access at home, even those dedicated devices to get schoolwork done. And one that stood out to me was their access to teachers. And so almost half said they didn't have enough access to teachers for any questions or follow-up about schoolwork. And that seems, and that kind of jumps out at me. How would that look differently if you know, they were full-time in, in person? And so, and then there were still substantial percentages that said that the spring remote learning experience did not go well at all or, or all that well, uh, almost 40% total, you know, had a negative reaction to that question. So I guess, you know, going into this school year, and Jen, you had mentioned this about the preferences for going completely online or hybrid or completely in-person. Were there some interesting findings there that stood out? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's related to what you just said is it's almost like kids see the potential in these media, like they see the potential of online learning and they see those and that seems to be what they're into because you're right. There's this weird thing they said, well, this didn't necessarily go very well, yet I still want to give it a try, which I like, you have to respect the optimism of youth, right? Like we have been grizzled by life's experiences. And so if it goes poorly, we say we never want to try it again. So I think it's actually one of these things is like, we're learning some of these fundamental things about the way kids look at schools, but it's still like, it's still fuzzy around the edges because we haven't quite figured out how to do it right. So that's the sort of thing of like picking out these little seeds of 
what these kids are seeing and their experiences and what they're liking and what they're disliking. And it's probably going to take some time and ideally not in the middle of a global pandemic when we think about how can we better design schools to meet those needs. I also want to touch on, and we didn't really get into this in the blog post that frames up this report, but you know, as we look at moving, hopefully, knock on wood, past this global pandemic, at school choice more generally, I think we don't know yet what parents and students will want in K-12 education once there's a vaccine and, and going back in person perhaps becomes the norm again. But we did ask the 8th through 12th graders what amount of say they had in choosing their current school. And it was shocking to me as someone who's about to embark on this journey with a 7th grader and soon to be 8th grader who her school taps out in 8th grade. But more than a third of these students said they had no say in choosing their school, which is, I mean, shocking to me, right? Because I work in the school choice movement, but that was alarming. And obviously, when we asked them if they should have a say, a whole lot more of them said that they should. But I, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to pursue researching 13 to 18 year olds is because they are our next generation of choosers. They will presumably go on, get older, you know get jobs, get married, have kids, do all that good stuff. And how do they look at their own experience? Did they have a say? What amount of say will they give their kids? And so it's fascinating to me to kind of see the gap in these older kiddos not having much say in their choice of schooling type. Yeah, and that also really surprised me. So among those 8th to 12th graders that we surveyed, like you mentioned, it was like 35% said that they had no choice. And then we're looking at the percentage who would like to have a say in choosing their school. Almost three quarters said they would like to have at least some say in choosing their school. And so there's already that disconnect among those teens going into high school and in high school. And we also had a similar question about those who were uh, high school graduates, which is smaller sample size. So a little bit of caution around the numbers, but those actually do line up a little bit more. So it seems like there is this disconnect between choosing in K-12 or particularly for high school, and then comparing that to the choosing process and decision-making process for higher ed and going off to college. So yeah, those are interesting findings. Perhaps that's a good segue into the last section of the report of, you know, cautionary tale of what are kids interested in and what are they looking at as issues that they care about. And sadly, education reform is not high on their list. So we may, we may have a hurdle ahead of us in terms of making them care more about the issue of school choice and school choosing. Yeah, so we asked these questions about social issues. And so just generally, you know, what are those social issues that really matter to teenagers today, at least at that point in time in August around back to school? And then, you know, who are they comfortable talking about these kinds of issues with? And I think there are some not huge surprises. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the coronavirus outbreak are both you know, big, big issues uh, in the minds of teens right now and following on the heels of just you know, so much attention given to both of those topics over the summer. But then, like you mentioned, there, there are implications for us in the education reform space that we have a room cut out in terms of building awareness and understanding about these different types of issues and policies that we like to talk about. And then in terms of where they go, this kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast. It's interesting to see where teens are going to talk about some of these issues. And TikTok and Instagram are right at the top. And Facebook and Twitter are kind of middling. But 
I don't know if you guys have any reactions to that. Yeah, I have a take, and I don't know if this will be agreed with, and that's okay. Um, but you know, when I look at the results from yeah, what issues you care about, it seems to me that these are heavily driven by kind of recency, right? So if we look at the top results, coronavirus, Black Lives Matter, 2020 presidential um election and then lgbtq rights is next but then behind that is police and criminal justice reform so of those top five four of them are probably the ones that have been most in the news right now if you remember was that it's you know time before the coronavirus is like a flat circle so i don't remember exactly when it was but if you remember when like greta thunberg did the climate strike and everything i remember at that time all the conversation was the only thing kids care about is the climate right now and they're going to be climate voters forever and so that's one thing to maybe keep in mind with a lot of these things is the degree to which younger people, and actually I would imagine that this extends to most people, care most about the things that are in the news right now. So if, you know, something related to, I mean, some of the other things that we we asked, I mean, look at one on there, it's like something like the Confederate flag. I would imagine that when, you know, South Carolina was debating it coming down and there were people climbing up flagpoles and taking it down and it was national news, that that number would be a lot higher because, you know, kids have a lot of other stuff going on in their lives. And so they're going to care most about what's going on there. So so I would be a little bit reticent to draw too many kind of long term things based on this just because it's going to be shaped by the events of the day. I don't know. You may disagree with me on that one, but that's at least when I look at it. No, I, th I think that's right. I think, you know, it's the shiny object. It's what's on the news each night. It's what they see on TikTok, what they're talking about with their friends, what they're talking about in their classrooms if they're back in class. I think that definitely is true of teens. And to your point, Mike, it's true of us older folks. So, you know, we have the whole span of generations here, by the way, because I was born in 1980. And so I am right between the two of you. And I don't have a generation. I'm just like the lost generation, the Oregon Trail generation, they call us, I think. But yeah, I think, you know, this certainly makes the case for us to continue polling this population in the coming months and years to find out which of these issues are issues that are going to stick and which of these issues are ones that are going to fade away for them as they, again, turn that corner from, right now they're just observing for the most part. Some, obviously, older teens are participating in the public discourse, in rallies, in advocacy events. But you know, they're really going to turn that corner as they get into college and they go on into their 20s, you know, which of these issues will be paramount for them? And how can we, you know, in the school choice movement, how can we move that education reform 20% right now saying that it's one of their top three most important issues? How do we move that up the list and help them understand that, you know, their experiences in K-12 education, the things that they might want to see for their own families someday, are important and they need their attention. So I don't know, but as Paul said, we got our work cut out for us. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to quickly wrap up and follow up, I mean, I think that's a great way of saying that we need to be following up with teens, polling to see if these, you know, their attention is changing over time. And so that's something that we at Ed Choice hope to do as part of the larger public opinion tracker project and series is to follow the attitudes, opinions, sentiment of teens over time to see to what extent they're stable over time or do they change pretty rapidly? Are they very sensitive to what's in the news and other kinds of you know, external factors and events? So maybe we'll just stop there. And I just want to say thanks again to both you, 
Jen and Mike for a great conversation about the results in this new poll of American teenagers. And I also want to point out to our listeners that they can download the report, the demographic tables and results, and the questionnaire that we use. They're found at our website for the public opinion tracker. And the link for that is edchoice.morningconsultintelligence.com. And when you're there in the upper right-hand corner, there's a tab for resource downloads, and that's where you can access all these downloadables. And they're there for you. And we hope that you find some interesting data and numbers that can maybe be of use and of interest to you. With that, I would just like to say thanks again for all of you listening. And we'll look forward to being with you again on EdChoice Chats. Thank <laughs> you.